Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas to me so you can keep every dollar that you've got. Our websites are clark.com and clarkdeals.com. And the clock's ticking. We are up against it with the tax deadline for this year that was pushed back from April 15th. And you got to get things going by Wednesday. Now, let me tell you what's involved. So there are a huge number, I don't even know how many tens of millions of people, who can't pay their tax bill that you owe this Wednesday. So what do you do? Well, don't do what people historically have done. Say, well, I can't pay the taxes, so I'm just not going to file. Because the IRS has two levels of penalties. They've got one, which is failure to file, huge penalty. And the second, failure to pay, which is a relatively small penalty, especially with how interest rates uh, track with the IRS based on what's going on with the general economy. The interest you owe on an unpaid balance is not ugly. But what you have to pay if you fail to file is beyond ugly. So here's the tactics you should follow. First, if you have the money to pay, but you don't have your return ready yet, you can file a form, simple form, that is called the 4868. And with it, All you do is you fill out a simple form that gives you an extension to turn in your return into the fall. And the tax you owe, you estimate what you think you're going to owe and you pay it to the IRS no later than Wednesday. So only if you grossly miscalculated And when the fall rolls around and you file your actual return, if you didn't send in enough now, you'd have potentially an underpayment penalty. But otherwise, you're okay to not file this week if you pay what you think you owe, and that turns out to be pretty accurate, and then file the return in the fall. On the other hand, let's say your return's ready, but you don't got the money. And that can happen, and this year is happening to a lot more people than would be normal. So what you do in that case is you file your return and then pay whatever the money you owe you can pay. And then there are a few ways you can handle it from here. You can just start sending the IRS money every time you've got it to work against your balance. 
or you can even propose a payment plan to the IRS, whatever payment plan you want it to be, separate form for that. And when you do that, the IRS is so backed up that you will probably have finished paying them off under whatever plan you propose by the point they'd ever get around to answering you and accepting or rejecting your payment plan offer. So the most important thing is regardless of whether you got money or you don't, file your return or file an extension right away before Wednesday. Get that done. And then later on, if you don't have the money, you come to account with the IRS and know that, yeah, there there's some interest you pay, but it's not really nasty. It's the not filing that's the nasty one. So please remember that and don't ignore what you owe to the IRS because if you just say, I, well, I just... I'm going to go take a vacation. I'm not going to file anything. I'm not going to do anything. Eventually, they get you. So it's time for your questions. You've posted for me at Clark.com slash ask. Producers Kim and Joel in this segment ask questions that you've posted. And Kim, who are we starting with? Today we are starting with Ray. Ray is from Georgia and Ray says, I have an elderly father who can no longer drive. We still need the vehicle to help transport him back and forth to doctors since it's an easy vehicle for him to get in and out of. We want to transfer the title into my name so that I can assume the insurance coverage. But is it better for me to have it gifted to me or for it to be sold to me in a small amount? So as long as your dad does not have a large number of assets, He can just give you the vehicle. And if the value of the vehicle at this point is worth $15,000, then you have no tax implications regardless, even if your dad has a lot of assets. And so you would have him sign the title over to you. And there's a thing, you know, a lot of states have special taxes or fees you pay when you uh, assume ownership of a used vehicle, even if it's a arrangement like this, but in several states, there's a special procedure if it's a transfer within a family from like in this case, father to son, brother to sister, whatever, that you are exempt from most of the fees that would normally be paid when it's an inside the family transaction. So before you just pay the fees or taxes, you want to check to see if that is something you'd be eligible for. And I hope that your dad does well and it's wonderful what you do to help take care of him. And Joel, who do you have a question from? Clark, this one's from Paulette in Florida. She says, I got approved for the EIDL grant and I received my $1,000. Thanks to you, Clark. It arrived with no explanation or email, though, just a deposit. Are there restrictions (laughs) on how I can spend it? And do I have to submit receipts ever? I got the grant, not the loan, and I'm an independent contractor with no employees. No, I mean, this has been kind of crazy that you will get paperwork possibly in 
a month to two months. And it will tell you what the deal is with the $1,000 grant. But as far as the money, it is yours to spend for operating your self-employed business. And that's all you got to know. I would keep receipts that are legitimate business expenses just in case you ever have to provide any documentation later. And Kim, who do you have a question from? This is from David in California. He says, we have a large family of eight. We have an emergency fund about $20,000. We also have about 10,000 saved for a car fund. We do not need to replace our cars for another two to three years and aim to save 20 to 30,000 for our vehicle replacement fund so that we can pay cash for the next two cars. The concerns crossed my mind recently whether or not this thirty to $50,000 of cash that we have now in a savings account will affect our son, who is a senior of high school this year. Since we have no money saved for college, we are hoping that it will qualify for financial aid. I currently make about 72000 a year, and I'm worried that this thirty to fifty k that I have in savings will stop him from getting financial aid. So let me put your mind at ease. Parental assets are a very small relative calculation in terms of the effect on a son or daughter for financial aid. Money in the hands of a son or daughter is a big impact on financial aid. But the kind of money you have saved has minimal impact on financial aid as an example, let's take 50000 You'd be expected to use uh, somewhere like 2500 of that over the course of a year towards your uh, child's college education, somewhere around 5% or so. So the impact of the, uh, on your child is tiny until you get to where someone has huge amounts of money, huge wealth, And so in your case, doing the right thing, saving up money to pay for a vehicle without a loan, bites you just a tiny amount, and I would not fret too much. Joel? Clark Sandy in Georgia says, going through a drive-through COVID-19 testing station, they're requiring social security numbers. Is it safe to give that information, though? That is weird and odd. Why in the world would that be a legitimate business purpose? That bugs me. I mean, the only thing I could think of is they're trying to keep people from coming back again and again and again for tests, which is crazy anyway. Who would want to go back and wait in those lines? I have no clue why that would be something that would be part of the forms and i would ask the question what reason they're asking for a social security number if you really don't want to give it but you have to put a number down on clark.com we have numbers you can give that nobody's assigned that would give you the ability to provide a number that would not be the actual legitimate one that you have that could be at risk I'm just scratching my head. I can't come up with a good reason why they would ask for that. Kim? Michael in Colorado says, Clark, my mother has recently passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. 
Is there an insurance clearinghouse to find out if she had a life insurance policy? I'm concerned that I might have missed something in the enormous amount of papers that she had. So again, uh, my sympathies to you. The crazy thing is the insurance industry knows when an insured has passed away. It's been the source of many lawsuits. As far as what you usually have to do is you have to wait a while and then start checking with unclaimed property offices to see if there is, in fact, a policy out there that you have not been able to make a claim against because you don't know it exists. I would also recommend that you call your state insurance department and see if they have any database available where you could see if there is, in fact, any insurance policies that are, if there is a database where you could see if there are any insurance policies that your late mom had. And that is something that is hit or miss with some states having an addressable database like that and others not. Joel? Clark, Mike in Pennsylvania says, I have an eight-year-old son. I'd like to freeze his credit. But every bureau requires some combination of copies of his birth certificate, social security card, and my driver's license. Ironically, I don't trust these bureaus to handle this sensitive information with care. And recently, Clark, you gave the green light to someone wanting to add a 13-year-old as an authorized user on his credit card. That got me thinking, is it possible to do that with an 8-year-old as an authorized user, forcing the credit files to be created, then going online and freezing those files? Okay, that's a brilliant idea. Try it and let us know. If it works, is a way that you create a file that then you can freeze. I love that. Eric is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Eric. Hi, Clark. It's uh, great to talk to you. Well, great to have you here. Thank you so much. So we're interested in picking up a vehicle off a swap lease. Uh, We found a seller that's offering to give us a concession, and we get a nice little discount to drive off the remaining part of their lease. Uh, We have the cash to buy it outright, but I know sometimes you said it's best to wait six weeks until until there's six weeks left in the lease before you make the buyout offer. I'm just wondering what would you do in this situation? All right. Well, first, let me give some background, if you don't mind, Eric, for other people. So there are people who are in vehicle leases. About a third of the market in the last few years has been people leasing a new vehicle instead of buying one. And then you're a prisoner to that contract, even if your life circumstances change. So that's led to uh, two particular players, Swap-A-Lease and Lease Trader, that play a match game and take a cut of the action for helping somebody get out of a lease and somebody else get into it. In your case, do you, have you qualified with the leasing provider to take over that lease? Well, we haven't made it that far yet. I'm still in the early stages of uh, trying to figure out what we're going to do. My credit score is in the 800s. So, uh, so what I don't what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to execute a purchase early. Go okay. ahead and if the lease transfer to you works out well, the lease term is how many months? I think it was about 13. Okay. So let a little bit of time run with the lease, figure out if you really like the vehicle. And there will be a a big uh, difference in who owns the lease, who's done the lease 
if it's a bank leasing arm, they will be all ears trying to negotiate with you to buy it because they don't want it at the end of the lease. And the residual stated in the lease is not a figure you have to pay a lot of attention to except only as an initial marker because you may be able to drive down the purchase price. On the other hand, if the lease is through the financing arm of one of the automakers, they don't do much negotiating anymore on the residual on a vehicle. So you would ask, as you mentioned, six weeks out, but I would not be especially optimistic that you're going to be able to cut a deal with the finance arm of a manufacturer. But do you know why the banks are so negotiable? They don't want it. They don't want it because they have to take it and then wholesale it. They can't do what the manufacturers do, which is make it available to one of their franchise dealers to put on their very profitable used vehicle lots. So that's why that's such a huge distinction in your negotiating power. Awesome. Thank you so much, Clark. All right. Best of luck to you. Thanks. Take care. It's my pleasure to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about your empowerment with knowledge so you can save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Our websites are clark.com and clarkdeals.com. And a question for you, deal or no deal, you buy a vehicle and then because of coronavirus, you lose your job and then you can just turn the vehicle back in, no questions asked. Is that a deal? Well, Ford Motor Company hopes that you think it is. There's so much uncertainty in the marketplace and I'm sure the research and focus groups that the automakers are doing are finding the fears involved and the vehicle market has been really really distorted you know we went through a time period back in the spring when there was a massive oversupply of both new and used vehicles but then the new vehicle factories were closed for three months almost in many cases 10 weeks easy and people who needed a vehicle found quickly there were inventory issues used vehicles that have been so heavily discounted have gone the other way and lately people have had trouble finding certain used models everything is really turned upside down well now used vehicle inventories are starting to replenish and new vehicle inventories coming back but the demand is not demand overall is down significantly And it's because we've got an unknown here. We don't know how coronavirus is going to play out with the economy and uh, with people's health, safety, and lives. And so even though we had this huge drop off a cliff with the economy and a rapid partial recovery, from here it's going to be up and down, up and down, up and down, because until we get coronavirus under control the economy is going to have a big question mark so that's why ford in order to try to get people back in the market is running a deal all summer long where you can buy a newer used vehicle 
that's 2019-2020, uh, and yes, there are even some 21s out there. You can buy any of them, new or used. If you finance it through Ford, through one of their loans or leases, Ugh, I hate leases. Anyway, you can return the vehicle in the first year if you lose your job. And then your obligation ends. Ford's marketing name for this is Ford Promise. And this is really a smart idea from Ford. And I don't know if it's going to spread throughout the automotive industry. But when you have a time that even people who still have their jobs and their income's okay, they're afraid to buy. That's a point at which that people trying to sell expensive things like vehicles have got to pull uh, tricks out of the toolbox. And this is a very, very smart move to give people the confidence to feel like it's safe to go ahead, even if there's a question mark on your job. But just because Ford has done this and others may mimic this doesn't mean that you should run out and get a new vehicle. You need to think through, is it smart for your budget? Is it smart for your finances? And a lot of times the answer to taking on a new payment for years to come is not the best decision and that's how i'd like you to look at it and think it through and it's time for your questions you posted for me at clark.com ask and who's up now that would be me and this is from frank in new york frank says i'm a 67 year old retiree with a 401k question what percentage of my 401k would you recommend that i keep in stock versus fixed income I've always heard that the older you get, the more you should move away from stocks, and I appreciate your thoughts. Well, thank you very much for your question, and here's the hard part in your question. You're in retirement, you're 67, so if you have steady, regular sources of income in retirement, uh, you have Social Security, let's say you have an employer-based pension, or you served in the military and have a pension from that, if you have steady income that accounts for much of what you need to live on each month, then you can continue having a significant portion, a large portion of your money in retirement invested in stocks. On the other hand, if it's money you need to live on in retirement that you don't have those steady streams of income coming in month after month that provide most of your living costs, or some cases people are lucky enough to have enough of those things to cover uh, substantially all of their living costs. If you don't have that, then you need a much more conservative portfolio because you don't want to have too much exposure to the stock market that if things suddenly crater, that you're having to sell things at a real low just to live on. And your situation is one that lends itself really well to doing a financial health checkup. I like an organization called Garrett Planning Network where you can hire someone like you'd hire an accountant or a visit to a doctor or whatever 
where you pay or lawyer where you pay for a session where they go through what you've got what you have coming in and what your situation is to recommend to you what the right exposure you should have is to stocks so that you don't put yourself unnecessarily at risk but at the same time are not overly conservative that ultimately inflation becomes a serious problem for you. Joel? Clark Peter in Ohio says, I currently use Gmail as my primary email provider, and I know it's a free service. My question is, though, are there any email service providers, paid or free, that don't have annoying advertising emails that still actually work well? Well, the one that seems to be in right now is ProtonMail. ProtonMail is from Switzerland, and if I remember right, and Proton Mail is all about security. And so they also don't annoy you with all the ads that others do. My son, who's really into security, is obsessed with Proton Mail. But the thing is, Proton Mail, from the security standpoint, is only effective if both the sender and the recipient are using Proton Mail. But it has the dual benefit of not having all the ads and also the potential for much better security. The sign-in is a pain in that it purposely doesn't remember you each time and you have to sign in all over again each time. But it's all part of creating a more secure environment. Somebody just happening upon your computer when you're away from your desk and they start reading your mail or whatever. Kim? This question came in from two different people, Yolanda and Rosalind, both based in Georgia, and they say something to the same effect, which is that they've been approached by friends to do something called SUSU, or also known as friends and family, also known as something called Level Up. And they want to know what you think about this, and I'll go in the into the details if you don't already know Clark, but it's the one where you end up paying a certain amount to go in and then you recruit other people and you get a once payment and then other people do. Does this sound familiar? Oh yeah. Oh Oh, good. Um, This was something we had a lot of questions about back during the great recession back uh, starting in 2008 and it shows that we're in a time of economic stress right now, uh, 40 or so million people having lost their jobs. And so the idea of these pools that work in a variety of different formats, um, most very informal, is people put money together into a pool and everybody's putting money in and the idea is if it works is that you get money at one point and then somebody else on the list gets money and then somebody else and on like that the danger here is you need to know who you're dealing with and i like these as a as a possibility only when it's friends or family members doing it together not strangers because that's where you're very likely to have scams or things that just don't work and the money vanishes is that when a group of people who know each other and are cooperative with each other are pooling money in a co-op, it allows a member potentially to open a business 
with money that people have pooled. It allows others to pay bills they may be facing. But there's no magic to this particularly because the total amount of money stays finite based on how many people are contributing and then paid out. It's not like money appears out of thin air, but it is a cooperative way for people to help each other who truly know each other, not strangers, because that likely won't work. Joel? Clark Richard in Texas says, I listened to your podcast recently, and there was a question about the safest ways to accept payment for the private sale of a car. I was wondering, what about Venmo or Zelle? Ooh, oh, 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 no! You don't no, even want me to go on. You just no, answer. Never, never. Don't do it. Oh, man. Okay. Okay, this is so weird, Joel, that you followed up right after Kim's question. All right, so think about this is the common theme across these two questions. So the one that Kim asked me is about knowing who you're dealing with, family and friends. With Venmo and Zelle, they are highly, highly risky to ever use them with someone who is not a friend or family member. They are used as an easy way to square up with somebody. Let's say you went in together to buy a gift for somebody, and one person paid for it and then needs to be reimbursed from other people. And so for small transactions like that, among people who know each other, Venmo and Zelle are just fine. But they are very, very risky. Um, They're off the risk chart. I mean, they're as risky as any way you could ever pay money to a stranger. And Zelle in particular is extremely risky as a platform. Just the way the banks have set it up is one that provides no meaningful protection to consumers in any way ever. Zelle stinks. Jim joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Jim. Hey, Clark. How are you doing? Great. Thank you, Jim. You have well, a question that call. has been very popular on our show the last two months. Oh, I imagine it has. Uh, and that's really one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to call you is so that other people that I work with could hear your response to it because I've heard from a lot of the folks that I work with that they're doing this, taking money out of their 401k because of the uh, COVID-19 thing and the CARES Act. Yeah. So the deal just for other people who aren't aware, you can yank uh, up to a hundred grand out of a retirement account and pay only ordinary tax on it and don't pay the 10% penalty. So it's essentially on a hundred grand, it saves you $10,000 in the tax bill you would have faced. You still pay all the rest of the tax. Right. But then you end up, a typical person will end up with $70,000 net from taking 100000 from their 401k or IRA while they're still working. Exactly. And in my, in my particular case, I'm 60 years old, so there's no benefit. As far as the penalty, I wouldn't pay the penalty anyway. The only benefit that would be me is is splitting the tax up over the three years. And and what I was thinking about doing is taking the money out of that two 401ks, the same company, but because of promotion to a different uh, uh, craft, 
the contract the uh, uh, dictates that the uh, 401k be managed by an outside uh, company as opposed to the company itself. So the company's 401k is just basically dormant. It's it goes with the ebb and flow of the stock market, and I've got it in a 2025 plan because I'm planning on being retired by then. So my benefit would would be just to pay my house off. I was, that's what I was going to do is pull it out just to pay my house off so I wouldn't have that outflow of cash going out of my pay every month. But the more and more I think about it, and I'm planning on working up until the house is paid off anyway, is to just stick with it, keep making my payments, and then you know when I retire, the house will be paid. Then, then I can live off of that money, along with an hour, I already have a military pension coming that I've been drawing on now for 20 years. So, you know, a- after I look at all the deal, it really doesn't benefit me. But no, a lot because of those guys in your case, to, all right. Let me ask you this: When you retire, that military pension will cover what percent of your living costs? By then, based on your plan, you'll be mortgage debt free anyway. Will the military pension cover most of your living expenses? Pretty much all of it. So then, don't even do what your friends are doing at work. Leave yeah. the money in your four hundred one k. The big advantage for you is going to be over the decades. Having that money is almost like mad money for you. Exactly. That's that's the way I, I was thinking about it, too. So even though you can split it over three years and all that, the tax, there's no benefit to you not letting the money have year and year and year in and out to grow over who knows how many decades till you right. even need that money. Right. That, that That's my thoughts, and I kind of had a feeling that that's what you were going to say. Uh, really, a lot of the guys that I'm listening to at work taking the money out to buy trucks, stuff like that. Oh, do I know I, that's true? I just didn't see no benefit in that. Yep, you are completely right. To take retirement money just because there's not a 10% penalty and go buy something fun like a pickup truck makes no sense at all. That's so right. they're not going to like hearing that from me, but... <laughs> It's just the truth, right? Yeah, that's right. That, I mean, that's just the way that, that I look at it anyway. Uh, you're you're basically throwing away money. I mean, because if you take $100,000 out and you're, you're what left with a net of $70,000, you're just, I mean, you're paying a lot more for that pickup truck. Exactly. You got it. Well, Jim, best to you, and I'm so glad... Your financial future is so incredibly solid. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.